Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today... Brian Fitzgerald of Tinker Garden. It's this real social experience. You get, you know, half dozen or a dozen families who are around who are kind of hanging out with their kids, really fun time. But at the same time, their kids are learning a lot of what it takes in order to navigate the world. Brian will be sharing the value of free and open play, both for child development and community sanity. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. I've been getting some interesting email lately from listeners of Team Human asking if I've uh, if I've gone anti-net. You know the the message they're hearing, and I think it's a real one. The message they've been hearing is uh, in all this uh, uh, argumentation for real world connection between people, looking in each other's eyes, human beings intervening on the machine. Is that I've gone anti-digital, and. Uh, I uh, my first responses to those was no you know I'm not anti-digital I haven't changed my love of digital technology if anything digital technology's changed its love of me you know I uh, I was for digital technology implemented in the way that we were imagining in the late 80s and early 90s and then against digital technology the way it's being implemented right now by social media companies that mean to not just predict, but influence our actions and make us more predictable and and machine like. So, yeah, I'm I'm certainly anti application. I'm anti implementation of digital technology in this way. But I still hold out some hope, or at least think I do some hope for digital technology. But you know, as I slept on this and really thought about, you know, have I turned anti-digital. I mean, here I am doing a podcast that's digital, right? 
I, I can't be totally anti-digital. I can't have come this far. But I look back really on, on my own evolution over the last 20 years and realize, um, you know, I may have turned a corner. I may have finally gone to uh, the other side, if you want to call it that. I mean, I got involved in digital technology for real uh, in the late 80s. I learned how to program, do some basic and Fortran and things like that in the 70s in high school. But I really got exposed to the possibilities of digital technology in the late 1980s and very early 90s when it was a, a really almost psychedelic-inspired extension of human abilities. The folks who were into uh, digital technology, Howard Rheingold of uh, you know, the Whole Earth and Stuart Brand, who was one of the nerdy pranksters with, you know, The Grateful Dead and Ken Kesey in the 1960s. Timothy Leary, the psychedelics guru who really saw digital technology as the new psychedelic, a kind of a, a psychedelic drug you didn't have to take, but would nonetheless change the way you thought about boundaries between people. And, and in that early net, in the bulletin boards and the well and all that Usenet and the stuff that a lot of people of my generation seem so nostalgic about, it really was looked at. The net was looked at in a very different way than it is today. No one imagined making money off the net. The net was the place where you did the other stuff. You might work during the day and then play online at night, connect with people and talk about not just counter-cultural things, but the things that connected you to others. People forged relationships across national boundaries, racial boundaries, gender boundaries, age boundaries, that really boundaries that, that hadn't been broached in those ways before. And there was this sense of mutual respect and connection that it felt as if we were taking that, that global television broadcast culture and now giving all of the viewers a way to connect with one another instead of just with this top-down corporate packaged media. So it felt like fighting back in a certain way. We were the content. And my first books, uh, my first real book, Siberia, Life in the Trenches of Hyperspace, was an evaluation, but admittedly in some ways a celebration of the possibilities of this new culture that was being defined by new physics and chaos math and rave culture and electronic music and fantasy role-playing and open-ended games and new kinds of hands-on activism and, of course, uh, the internet, hypertext, this ability to move from thing to thing, to evade or uh, uh, violate the categories and disciplines that had been laid out for us, to do lateral thinking and connect areas of thought and interrogation that hadn't been connected before. So you started to see spiritual people connecting with physics people, connecting with math people, connecting with technology people, connecting with money people, and, and having a conversation about what was next for humanity. 
And, you know, then I wrote Media Virus, which looked at the new mimetic landscape and how the ideas of Richard Dawkins, who talked about memes as these essential units of culture that passed between people, that now they wouldn't have to be passed person to person by word of mouth, but now they had the amplification of the web and fax machines and email and all of these other peer-to-peer interactive lateral media that we would move from almost a a, a kind of a, a person-to-person sexual-like reproduction of ideas to a mimetic viral Uh, transmission of ideas. So the idea of viral media was still, I looked at it in a very positive way. This was pre-Trump, pre-insanity. This was the hidden agendas of popular culture now finding a way to express themselves, whether it was a black guy getting beaten by white cops in Los Angeles, or um, kid culture, or psychedelic culture, or smart drugs even. There were um, all of these repressed cultural agendas that were now Uh, being expressed because we had viral media, because we had lateral media. And then I saw people, oh, they were also worried about the kids using this stuff. And now kids have short attention spans and they're going online and clicking lots of things and they're watching Beavis and Butthead. Oh, woe is me. So I wrote a book called Playing the Future, which was Again, a very, if anything, my most optimistic screed on internet culture, on the possibilities of digital, and what it really meant to move from this uh, very cause-and-effect, top-down controlled society to a bottom-up, fractal, youthful culture. And, and I was even arguing that you know kids wouldn't turn into couch potato internet, uh, internet heads that Thanks to the internet, we were also seeing a a reaction against being completely cyber geeky kids. People were going out and skateboarding and snowboarding and surfing and getting into extreme sports and even piercing and scarification seemed to me to be these uh, uh, affirmations of the physical, of the human, of of the sensory in the face of these kind of numbing digital media. But shortly after that, I saw that really my books were being bought and my memes were being absorbed more by marketers and uh, investors than they were by the counterculture, by people. It was advertising agencies who were interested in media virus, and it was marketers who were interested in learning about the new generation of screenagers I had described in Playing the Future. And what I saw was the leading minds of the digital generation being hired to develop marketing ploys and algorithms and responsive technologies that could use the clicks that people made in order to reprogram websites on the fly to market to them better, to convince them to do things, to buy things. So I wrote this book, Coercion, which in some ways was that turning point for me, saying, look, there was this great net, and look what you're doing with it. You're taking all of the traditional age-old, you know, millennia-old manipulation techniques, and they're just migrating onto the internet where bots and programs are going to exercise them instead of people. So instead of inducing regression and transference the way a salesman might do it, um, now you do it through a disorienting website or by pacing and leading people with uh, banner ads that flash in a certain way and pull you toward them. 
you use Pavlovian techniques and Freudian techniques, either to to stimulate people on a behavioral level, like a little uh, a Skinner experiment, or on a psychological level, like some kind of psychotherapy, or uh, like when a cop gets you in the box and starts doing that questioning and starts using those uh, psychoanalytic techniques on you. So I got concerned about it. But even after that, I tried and tried again to say, look at this open source, internet-y, hypertext connected sensibility. You know, can't we bring that to business, I said, and get back in the box, to religion, I said, in nothing sacred, um, to technology itself, which is what I was arguing in Programmer Be Programmed, that we're losing that essential open source empowering understanding of what these technologies can be. And it's not that they fell on deaf ears, but they didn't really succeed in pivoting the internet culture away from this marketing and business on steroids. Um, instead, they were really just, they tended to be incorporated by developers into ways of making the things they were doing appear to be empowering, even though they were the same human programming and disconnecting, alienating technologies that we had been developing since the, the late 90s. So I wrote Present Shock saying, look, there's this human organism that's now getting kind of changed by these technologies. We're losing our sense of timing, of, of real, of nowness as we chase after these machines that aren't even living in our temporal reality. You know, I wrote Life Inc. saying, wait a minute, you know, there's this corporate thing that's coming that's that's being that's finding a place to live inside these technologies. We're giving body to these these technologies. The same thing really that I just was arguing in this last graphic novel I wrote, uh, uh, Alistair and Adolf. You know, and then, you know, finally I got to um throwing rocks at the Google bus, which in some ways is is negative about technology. It's saying, oh, no, don't do this. Don't use it for this. We, we don't want to use digital technology in the name of capital. We want to use it in the name of humans. And there are half of that book, you know, half of every chapter is uh, recommendations, things we can do instead. Here's how you can do a local currency. Here's how we could do crowdfunding. Here's how we could use blockchain in a, in a creative way. Here's how we can do platform cooperatives. Here, you know, here are all these ways that we can build lateral uh, uh, circulatory economy rather than this big um, extractive thing. But I think people are right in the sense that I'm thinking now that the most powerful thing we can do is to meet together in real space. The The only way we're going to be able to deploy digital technology in a positive way is if we as human beings are grounded in the real world, connected in a real way, so that we see digital technology as an extension of what we do in real life rather than a replacement of what we do in real life. That we see these technologies as intelligence augmentation rather than artificial intelligence. It's not the landscape of human interaction. This real world is the landscape of human interaction. The internet is an extension of it, a way to get things done, a way to find each other and then meet back in the real world. 
So does that mean, you know, Team Human is anti-net? No, it's not anti-net, but it's pro-real life. It's pro-organic experience. And the extent to which our organic experience as human beings informs our digital activities, God bless, go digital. But the extent to which our digital uh, behaviors and businesses and and algorithms replace our humanity, that's where I draw the line. So what I believe we need to do is anchor our experience in the real world as much as possible in order to deploy digital technologies effectively. Now, and one way, of course, of returning to that real world is hands-on play in the real world. You know, in a nutshell, the mission of Tinker Garden. We are Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. Our guest, Brian Fitzgerald of Tinker Garden. The thing that got me so excited about what you're doing is I used to do this radio show on WFMU yep. called uh, The Media, Media Squad. And in it, there was a segment called Real People Doing Real Things. And I haven't actually done that segment on this show, partly because it's like more podcasting and don't do segments, but partly because it's so hard to find real people doing real things. Mm. It's way easier to mm. find guests kind of more like myself, who are people whose the real things they do are pieces of media or thinking about things or creating artifacts. Very few people who are like, oh, I'm doing permaculture farming on a piece of land producing food. Right. Or, right. You know, actually doing, or, 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 you know, Astra Taylor, well, we're helping people, you know, who are in extreme debt, we're creating a sort of a virtuous circle where people are getting money, or you guys who are like, oh, we have real human beings in parks yep. creating activities for young people, right. right? You're not doing a PDF of yep. activities for young people right. or a YouTube instruction for parents on how to do things with young people. You're actually doing things. Right. How did you get to the bizarre place where you're actually <laughs> creating actual value as humans moving through space? Yeah. But yeah. how did you get to that conclusion that this was something that you should do, right. unlike the others? So it's been a, a very circuitous route. <laughs> uh, starting over 20 years ago, I, I was, uh, I've been a media guy, a tech guy, my whole career, right? So I worked in Silicon Valley you know, way back in the late 90s, and I got sucked out there from the East Coast working in the startup scene, and I worked for Yahoo for, for many years. And then I worked for Audible back here in in, um, wow. in New York. But the late night, if you were the late nineties, mid nineties, like ninety six, ninety seven. So uh, you were you went out to San Francisco while the sort of psychedelic, cyberdelic, ravey thing was still yes alive. Yeah. So how did they find you? Were you a computer person, or were you like a weird culture person? I was a media guy. I like I, I was not a computer person. I was I was kind of a maker producer. I, I went to a business school, but I kind of. I didn't like the business stuff. Yeah. I liked all the making stuff, right? So, so you made video. Made like, video. Like offline a lot of video, editing. Yeah, a lot of crazy big, big cameras carrying them around yeah. and doing strange things, uh, you know, project-based things. And so, so when I wanted to get into the media, the internet was sort of coming up. This is 95 and so, and got really interested in like this idea of customized news and how you can get, you know, you know your own version of the news and so forth. Right. And so I kind of got hooked on that. 
But then, you know, there was this whole world that was happening out in the West Coast, and I said, I kind of got to be there. So I got out there and then sort of quickly got swallowed up in, you know, in the belly of the beast. And, and I, I rode that ride for a bunch of years. And uh, I mean, of course, like super interesting because getting exposed to a lot of things. But I had always had these like kind of roots in kind of questioning things and, and wondering about where this is all headed. And uh -huh. my, my friends and contemporaries are the ones who kind of did the Google, yeah. did, did the Facebook, did the, you know, like went off and, and stayed there. And uh, went the pure tech route, you know, many of them became investors in these companies right. and so forth, right? So when when I got back here, I was at Teachers College, uh, you know, in the city and, and began to think a lot about education. So You went there to get like a master's in teaching? Yeah, I, I was very interested in education. My wife's an educator, so huh. she was a classroom teacher, curriculum developer. She was a principal right up the road here in uh, in Tarrytown, actually. Oh, really? In yeah. elementary school? In an elementary school, yeah. And so sport for us was like sitting at the dinner table, you know, thinking about, okay, how can we shake up this education thing? Because clearly the direction is not, you know, headed in the right, the right one. And so what are we going to do about this? And we were, you know, at this time we didn't have any children and we just were, were you know, kind of yeah. ambitious and optimistic. American, what you're supposed to do is read lots of angry articles, complain on social media. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, show up at board meetings and scowl at the Board of Education. Oh, right, and do nothing. You're supposed to do something else? <laughs> what, right. What are the other options? That's right. Yeah, so, so here I am. It's probably 2003 or four, and I'm scratching my head saying, you know, I got to do something here. I'm, I, I have all this consumer tech background, but I'm somebody who doesn't necessarily like the direction of... of where things are headed and so I care about education and and I care about you know trying to make things that help people learn and so what can I do and and so at that point spent some time at Audible I built in kind of an education you know whole set of education products for them helping kids to you know listen to stories as a way to get interested yeah. in reading and, and this is before Audible was Amazon it was just right. Audible yeah. yeah yeah so I was there through the Amazon acquisition so again got swallowed up in the, uh -huh. the, the beast did you get to be year. billionaire Are I you? didn't no no, okay. no I've, I've kind of <laughs> I've been the guy who for better or worse like hasn't hasn't followed the money necessarily yeah and so I know a lot of billionaires but I'm not that guy you didn't time your things ex your <laughs> things exactly right to That's get right. the because there's people who f just fall into like getting oh here's 10 million of options I just got from this oops right. you know and they're there 90 days at the right 90 days and get the thing you're finding the wrong three-year periods coming yeah. in after the thing and before the yeah. visits yeah and it's you know to be honest with you it's it's you know for better or worse you, when you follow your heart you don't know you're not always like focused on that uh -huh. as a goal and so uh I feel like as from a career perspective I've had some you know, fortunate to have some pretty interesting experiences. So sort of a lot of ed tech, you know, over, over the next, you know, handful of years. I was in New York City, um, worked for a company called Newton that was doing kind of AI, you know, uh, adaptive learning stuff. Uh -huh. And uh, But on the side, so my wife and I continued to kind of have this nightly conversation around, well, what, you know, we're, we're creating all this technology, we're doing all this development, but like, wh how is this going to help in the context of what kids are really up against, which is eight plus hours a day more in front of a screen and you know a decreasing amount of time to you know do recess kids who are tracked into trying to learn how to read by the time they're three they're on the soccer field by the time they're three and a half and what's happening to those early years right and at the time we we knew a dangerous amount about early childhood ed you know those first five years where you've got to you're paving the pathways right you're and all the piaget stuff yeah, yeah. right right so you that's know, still true 
Absolutely, yeah. right? You've Neuroplasticity got... reduces over the, as you get older. and That's right. Those first five years really matter when it comes to yeah. like sort of shaping who the person is. And, but the trends were alarming. So we're basically taking away all of the uh, opportunities for that creativity, that making, that sort of nonlinear thinking, that experiential stuff to happen. But when we were thinking about it, we thought, you know, well, how did this happen when we grew up? Because like, there were, wasn't all that research, and like nobody really talked about it. Our parents didn't, didn't really talk it. about it, and there were no grown-ups around either, though. I mean, oddly enough, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Because what happened, right? Your mom, your dad said, "Kick go you out, out the door," yeah. and they said, "Just go outside." And there were slightly and... older kids on the block. Yep. Who kind of led the rest of us in a pack? That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't rob houses or anything, but. It was pretty random. It was yeah. very random. Yeah. It, it was perfectly random, right? Uh, and so if you think about what's going on in ed tech and consumer technology, et cetera, right now, it's around simulation. It's around creating these environments that have an opportunity to be random and to stretch the limits and to take risks and to do things that are kind of non-conventional, uh -huh. right? It's sort of the same thing that happened like when you used to go and hang out with the older kids, right? you would get stretched and you would be in social environments right. that made you do things. And Jump off this. You'd be on the edges, right? Yeah. You'd be in the woods. You'd be like, you know, grabbing an old can and like attaching it to a stick and a string and who knows uh -huh. what, you know, transpired after that. So all of that ingenuity that happened is, uh, it's kind of being eliminated now, right? We don't have an opportunity to let our kids do that because if you look at, there's really interesting studies that have been done generation to generation around concentric circles, how far parents let their kids roam. Like three generations ago, that used to be eight miles or more, right, for a six or an eight-year-old. You know, two generations, you know, ratchet that back to three miles. Then it was, you know, a mile. And now it's block. You know, a block, yeah. maybe, right? And so what you lose as a kid is this opportunity to stretch yourself, to take some risks, to not have your parents, you know, kind of hovering, right? <laughs> and you can experiment and, and so forth. So going back to kind of what we were thinking about at the time, is like we, at the time we had our, our first daughter in 2010 and, you know, we said, okay, what's the world that she's going to be growing up in and what is she going to be exposed to? Well, you know, here's somebody who is going to be coding by the time she's five years old and she'll be, you know, facile with you know, anything she needs to do with respect to media and, and tech and so forth. We're not worried about that, right? I mean, we're worried for different yeah. reasons about that, but we're not worried about her abilities, right? right? What we are worried about is, you know, is she going to be able to hang out with kids and socialize and navigate those situations in life that require things like persistence and grit and, um, you know, emotional intelligence, you know, and it, will she be able to think non-linearly, right? She's going to be changing right. jobs every, you know, six months or two years. She'll be a freelancer. She'll work with people from all around the world. Will she be able to understand, you know, uh, balance and tolerance and so forth? So right. these are all the things that, you know, interesting enough, when my wife's up the road here in a school, are not being taught, you know, in public schools anymore. And these are the things that, you know, from a social perspective, parents don't necessarily have their eyes on. However... When you think about what parents want for their kids and who they want their kids to be, all these terms come up. I want my kid to be a creator, a maker, a doer. I want my kid to, you know, well, be when able to socialize. Well, when you're talking to upper middle class people, yeah. Right. When you talk to the parents of the, the students I teach at Queens College, they're not saying that. So I want my kid to 
have a better job than I do. Right. You know, I want them to have a clean job. Yep. You know, they're as opposed to working construction. I want them to have a desk job somewhere. Right. So similarly, though, the way that you solve that problem is very similar. And so to get that job, you don't need necessarily that rote set of skills, right, that uh, we seem to be tracking toward in, in you know, public yeah. education now. What you need is the ability to navigate social situations. Right, and the ingenuity and the perseverance and the social skills to get the job when 90,000 other people have the same qualifications. That's right. You know, I know, but that's a hard argument to make these days. I mean, well, you know, institutionally, that's not what school, schools are listening to corporations right. to get what are the skills that our graduates need to get jobs in your company right. and for their state testing so their teachers don't get fired. Yes, yeah, that's right. But at, at, at the end of the day, what these companies and what these public institutions and even the schools, right, if you think it, about higher ed and, and secondary education and so forth, everybody is... is, is kind of hovering around this set of uh, uh, skills, right, that they want people to have, that they know people will need to have to kind of navigate right, the world. Right, which we call like soft skills or people skills or right. how to be human. I That's mean, right. to, to, to use my, uh, my tagline. That's right, yeah. So, so in those first five years of a child's life, you know, the first five, eight years, that's where you learn how to do that stuff. And so kind of coming back to the, the genesis of Tinker Garden, what we were thinking about at the time we started this was, how do we reverse engineer getting our kids those skills, right? So what my wife and I did, she was a curriculum developer and I was you know, kind of a dude. Sort of DIY dude, <laughs> right? Uh, we started to just dream up activities. Here's how we're gonna hang out on the weekends, right? Here's how we're gonna spend our time with, with our daughter at the time and our friends you know, and their kids. You know, we would go up to Prospect Park and we would hang out for the afternoon and we would just do these activities that were these scenarios basically that we would set up. We'd start, you know, these, these could be as young as 18 months old kids, right? And we would set up these like kind of, you know, situations and so forth and we'd have them with their hands on things doing and making and, and messing around and getting dirty and muddy. And, and what happened was we, you know, we started this with some friends and, you know, we, we threw it up on a few message boards locally and before you know it, you know, everyone started started you know, coming around and they wanted to do it with us. And so we were publishing these things one a week online. We were saying, hey, you know, if you're interested in doing these things with your kids, here's what we're learning. So there was always a formula to it, you know, which is here's what you do, here's how to execute it, and here's what's going on, like what's under the hood. So what's an example of a typical activity? Yeah, so we may set up a scenario, for example, which is uh, you know, we, we arrived up in the park and, and we're gonna do some painting, but oh, hang on, we forgot the paints, you know, what are we going to do here? And so kids need to go around and find natural materials that they may take and mash and manipulate in order to make the paint. We may bring a couple of berries or something yeah. to help them out. And then we start to, you know, create and imagine based on some of the natural materials that are around us, right? There might be another one where we're on a walk and we have like secretly planted some really random things, things that you would not find in a park, uh, like baking materials. And we'll sort of construct this story about, you know, the forest fairies who left these things for us. And I wonder what they were thinking and why would they have left these, you know, items for us? And so you're kind of creating a mystery for children as they, they kind of move along. Now, and, do they, in child reality, mm -hmm. 
Is it fairies that left those things, or did their parents do it and were pretending the fairies left the things? They don't know. They, they, they just think the fairies left the things, okay. right? <laughs> uh, but the important thing is we're sort of sparking an imagination. And you know, you're doing this with 10 kids, and 10 kids are going to have a very different experience from what happens next, because they start to imagine, oh, wow, they're forest fairies. What can they do? And how can I help them make and cook? And what else will they need? And you know, So then they spread out, and they start to go you know, walk away for 100 yards. And you know, they're in the woods, and they're by the river, and they're doing you know, interesting things. All of them are doing something very different. So it's, it's about having this experience that is, is very different. It's this real social experience. You get you know, half dozen or a dozen families who are around who are kind of hanging out with their kids, really fun time. But at the same time, their kids are, are kind of learning a lot of what it takes in order to navigate the world. I mean, I've had people from Europe come over and say to me, oh, you Americans, you watch your kids too much. Kids can't die. They have self-preservation mechanisms. Just let them out, you know? <laughs> right. They're not right. going to get run over. They're not going to fall off something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, and it's, it's, it is a very American kind of phenomenon in a lot of ways. So when Megan and I started thinking about Tinker Garden, we, we did a lot of studying, actually, of what's going on in Northern Europe. You know, for years, there's been this movement around forest schools and outdoor kindergartens and things like this, right? And so we've always known this as kind of a Swedish or you know yeah. German or, or you know idealistic Rudolf Steinery you know, Waldorf. That's right. You know biodynamic education system thing. That's right. And and when it comes to the U.S., we see it in a, in a similar form. We see it in places like maybe like Brooklyn, maybe San Francisco, and it usually comes attached to you know, a $30,000 a year kindergarten that you can send your kids to to get this experiential. Well, uh, and it's justified or over-justified as, oh, this is psychologically superior and they'll still do better on their SATs. And That's right. <laughs> you know, it's so applied that it doesn't feel, it's like, it, it becomes so, have you gone in them? They're precious. Yes. They're precious. It's like a hermetically sealed atmosphere, don't worry. Um, you know, everything is, is organic colors and there's going to be no, you know, no synthetic <laughs> right. surfaces. Yeah. It's like, oh my God. It's like, it's almost the it's opposite right. extreme, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, you totally get it, right? So this is this was our experience too, you know, so we, you know, we've been inside these schools. We spent lots of time, you know, as, as educators, formal and informal, like hanging out in these schools. And so we know what it's like on the inside. And we know that there's a strand of people who, who this makes sense for, but it's not, it, it, you know, at this point, it was not a mainstream thing, you know, and I right. think it still isn't a mainstream thing. And so very much what our kind of mission is, is this idea that, hang on, there's no reason why any family in any community can't be gaining, you know, this kind of experience doing these things in a way that was very natural when we all grew up. Um, right. And so why can't we bring this same kind of concept to the mainstream in every single park yeah. in every single community. And everywhere. in a way that feels, you know, secular, not cordoned off, That's not right. sacred space, but reality. You know, there's a, yeah. it's a it's an invisible transition from our real world to we're in the park, we're playing. That's right, exactly. And so everything that we design in at Tinker Garden is these activities are meant to be transferable anywhere, right? So whether you're in a a square block of dirt in urban Detroit, or you're in a rural place in Montana, or you're in you know a, a city center uh, park. We we run these things everywhere. Right, and you can adapt. You know, to the if it's a smart enough person, you would think even normal smarts can adapt. That's right. From woods to you know <laughs> city. But then, is there an economic element? Does it cost anybody money? Yeah, 
Yeah, so there is. So, so first of all, all the activities are free. So you can just do it yourself. You right? go to the website. You go, go to, to tinkergarden.com and, and you go to the website and you just take the activities and have at it. We, our reason for doing this is we want every family everywhere to be able to right. just And so legally, without getting sued, yeah. I can go to the site, see it. I could put a note on my town bulletin board and say, I'm going to try some of these Tinker Garden things I found on this site. You want to come? Yeah, I mean, you know, legally you can't necessarily use our brand to do that. Right. But you could you could start your own little community group. You're not going to protect the IP from yeah, spreading. Okay. No, exactly. But we we have taken technology and applied it to make this thing scalable in the way that a in the way a technology company would think about things, right? And so what we use technology for is to find and uh, train the people in every community to do this kind of work. So I am my community, I want to do it. Yep. I email you or fill out a form on the site yep. and say I want to do it, then what happens? So then you get contacted by us, you'll go through a series of interviews with us, you'll go through a pretty rigorous process where you're background checked and we make sure All that virtually though, I could be virtually. in, in Bozeman, Montana. I don't That's have right. to fly to New York and get trained. That's right. We'll, ha we'll have 500 of these people this spring out around the country across 34 states, and most of them we haven't met. Uh, and then how do person. we get trained? We watch videos? We talk to you? So it's it's very much like a like a intense college course. Like a MOOC uh, type thing. <laughs> yeah, MOOC type thing, exactly. So you, you have asynchronous you know, video and content that you consume, but you have these live online sessions that are with people from all around the country, and it's a rich dialogue about kids and about early childhood ed and about how to take this thing and bring it to, to your community. Right. And so we train you. We, we invest heavily in training people because we don't want to just send them out. And, right. uh, and we want them to be able to help coach parents and, and coach the kids on, on how to you know, kind of right. get the most out of this. And then you give me like the tools or the PDF so I can use a logo and put on dates and plug things in and print things out and put on things and go to schools and that's right recruit my people and then after i do my first one mm -hmm. and they come so what parents pay what three dollars five dollars so par one? parents are paying there's a whole range depending on where you are but parents you know, call it twenty dollars a class or something like that uh, to send your kid not unlike a gymnastics uh, class right. or a, you know karate class or something and the parents like can come right. too and the parents come too yeah and uh and so certainly, you know, for communities, if you live in a community yeah. and you're habituated to sending your kids to classes, which many people are in the country, this is a very kind of natural thing that, that would happen. But if I'm in, if, uh, if I'm in Brownsville, right. there's special accommodations made for people who don't have that 20 bucks? There are, yeah. right. Increasingly, what we're doing is we're starting to partner up with, you know, kind of local community centers and even national programs, you'll see us start to work with national programs like the Head Start program that right. brings high quality early childhood education to communities. And so what we're doing is basically activating Tinker Garden leaders within those, those instances in, in underserved communities. And for us, you know, we, we basically want to be able to, to offer that access everywhere. Right. Right? And the business model is if, if it is a 10 or $20 thing, then the person splits it with you? Yeah, so we basically, we build the tech, we, you know, enroll people, we give the leaders everything they need to yeah. do to run the class. So we cover all the cost and we split the revenue with them 50-50. They earn money for doing classes. You can run one or you can run as many as you want to. So the in criminal community. in me wants to know, how <laughs> do you verify that they're not doing it with 40 kids and only claiming 20? 
so we do all the enrollment online, right? Oh, and so, that's smart. Um, yeah, yeah, so all of the enrollment happens. So we're under, and, and so a big component of what we're doing is the parent education piece of this. And so when you sign up, you get a rich kind of stream of, of communication from right. us. Like, here's the activity, here's what we did today. Here's Here the how you photos might follow what up happened. or whatever, yeah. Exactly. And if you've got an extra half hour this weekend, here's what to do. Now, right? when you do, I mean, you still lead them, right? Me personally? Yeah, sometimes. I, so I, I mean, I, I go to the classes all so the time, sure. If you're doing this, if I'm doing this thing in the park mm -hmm. in Hastings, yeah. there's kids are going to see and want to come join just live. What totally. do you do to them? Bring them on in, you know? So and they don't pay that time, right? They yeah. just come. Yeah, you bring your friends along. And then along you give them a flyer can... and say, this is what we do. Exactly, right. And if you're a person who just wants to do it by yourself, then, you know, have at it, you know, and, and do it by yourself. If you want to do it as part of this group on a weekly basis and you want to have a, you know, somebody who's right. professionally trained as a facilitator and you want to receive these emails, you know, which are kind of giving you some instruction about like, hey, what's going on, you know, with your kid who's three years old who keeps spinning around in circles. Why do they spin around in circles? Oh, that has something to do with, you know, schema, which is the way that the brain and, and human cognition develops, right? So it's not um, a bad thing? It's not a bad thing, right? Oh, when, when kids mess uh, are eating their food and they pour their milk in their mashed potatoes and they all yeah. over the table, you know, they're learning, their neurons are firing there. They're learning about what yeah. it means to be messy uh, because over time, if we allow them to do this kind of thing, we allow them to think messy when they're an adult, right? Which is a really powerful Which is idea. good. Yeah, my child was really uh, thrilled by the force of gravity. That was the main thing she liked yeah. to do with her food. <laughs> right. From the high chair all the way down. <laughs> right. All the way down. As if it's a, but maybe one time it's just going to float this time. Yeah. What did you think it's like, it's going to drop. It's gonna drop. Yeah, but she's in a she's a <laughs> she's she's a scientist, right? I mean, she's experimenting. She's yeah, either that or she's in the stoned reverie of the <laughs> of the two year old. You know that, or the one year old. There's this other place they go. Yep, yep, yep. That's right. Um, but you know, it's and it's interesting. I mean, these are the things that the inhibition or the the uh, instincts of parents sometimes are to. Well, I don't want it to be messy. I you know I want to keep the kitchen clean or I want to. Make sure you don't get dirty. What we got you know. civilization for? Clean. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. When is she going to learn the rectilinear, you know, <laughs> logic of our world? No, that was. I mean, part of the reason I moved out of the city was yeah. uh, the internet was was digital and discreet enough yeah. to walk out in the street and then see everything. Uh, grid pattern was just like, oh no, I, I'm not going to have my child live in a snap to grid yeah, if so yeah. much of our activity is already, uh, yeah. you know, locked in like that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And if you watch what kids do, if you just let them go, you'll see that they actually migrate to the edge of the park. They don't want to play in the middle of the soccer field. They want to hang out on the edge that you know falls off where there's kind of a creek and there's some broken cans and you know. That's that's where their interest is, and so just, uh, something <laughs> unexpected might be there. Something not programmed by some grown-up. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and so I think you understand a little bit about the motivation of why we wanted to do this. And and I think what's been interesting about the experience, you know, for us is that, you know, we my wife does, is an educator. You know, she comes from a formal education background, and but I have been this guy who's behind the screen creating, you know, consumer products that people see on screens and. It's been really cool to do something that, you know, kind of is, is such a, you know, perfectly human experience, right? Where it's really all about just getting together with people and 
letting kids do what they do naturally. Mm-hmm. Right. And then do you find it uh, <clears throat> changed the way you look at uh, adult life? Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> I mean certain... not that you have to get, you know, religious about it, but do you feel like part of our, our, our society's problems stem from our inability to go into this improvisational play mode? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, in fact, when, we, when we're finding Tinker Garden leaders, one of the questions that we ask you on the application is, if you were doing comedy, would you be more of an improv person or would you like to rehearse your lines, right? It's actually a really interesting indicator you know, for an adult as to what kind of person or thinker they are and how they might act you know, in, a so- in a cocktail party setting, but also how they might act when they're interacting with children. Uh, mm. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a real, this experience has also been a real reflection on you know, myself and my wife is a parent too. We've got three daughters and um, you know, they're obviously our guinea pigs for a lot of the activities yeah. and you know, spend a lot of time you know, with them doing that. There's a lot of self-reflection around you know, even things that we've been programmed to think about and to do without thinking too much. But, you know, and, and the other thing that's been really cool about this is we, we at first were like, okay, is this going to be just a, is this just a New York thing or an urban thing? Is this something that, you know, really only people within an urban setting care about? You know, it's kind of like my well, kids. Well, because, yeah, they're out on a farm. They already get all that. Right. And uh, it's really interesting what we found because we find all of our leaders online, right? Uh-huh. You know, they find us in Facebook and, and in parenting groups and so forth. And when they find us, it's always the same, no matter if it's in Chicago city center or if it's in some kind of rural town in the middle of the country. When we present the idea about, hey, you can bring this to your town, you can bring this to your community, everybody says the same thing, which is like, yeah, yeah, my kids need this. They need more of this. You know, our community needs more of this. And so uh, it's been really cool to just kind of find our other advocates and friends everywhere around the country, no matter where they're living. Yeah. Yeah. So are there ever uh, institutional obstacles? I mean, like, you know, the cops coming and saying, you're not allowed to do this here, you know, move on. <laughs> or you got to get insurance. I mean, if a kid twists their ankle, yeah. do they sue? I mean, what, you got to figure these things out, right? All, the, all those things, yeah. It's, it's you know, just like <laughs> anything else, it's a, like, wickedly complicated it set of stuff. It ultimately is, that right? You have to figure yeah. out. So we've... We've, you know, for the better part of a few years, those are the kinds of boring, like, issues that we've had to deal with. But, you know, parks is a really interesting thing, right? Because we started this in New York City parks, right? So New York City parks, you know, are basically laissez-faire. I mean, as long as you're not selling something illegal or stabbing somebody in the eye, right? They're going to let you do whatever you want to. Right. Right. But when it comes to a park system in any other community it may or may not be the case, right? There's no centralization. There's no standardization of rules. Town rules, yeah. Town rules, regional ordinances. And so, yes, I mean, there are are people who, when they first see us and and first think about this, say, well, wait a second. You need to think about our own programs to to bring this to the the community. And so what we've learned to do is is basically, and we we have been park advocates all along. We're just saying, hey, we're just trying to get families to come into these parks because they're beautiful, wonderful places, and people don't spend enough time as a family in them. And we teach a lot of stewardship, too. You know, we teach them about the park and how to preserve the park, and parks generally are very, you know, in favor of, of Tinker Garden and what, they're, what we're doing. Well, at least where there are parks. I mean, don't you find that there's been this kind of contraction of public space? It's 
harder. I mean, now it's a shopping mall or a yes. you know a paved paradise. Put up a parking lot. Yes. I mean, there's that problem that you know. That's why I was a while ago. I was advocating people do a Sabbath, uh-huh. and in a real Sabbath where you don't drive. Yeah. Because then you're going to have to see what's in around you. Meet your neighbors. Find a park. Oh, there is no park. Why not? What happened to the park? You know, <laughs> it's a restaurant. Um, you know that that there's sort of a, a reenchantment with your physical walkable yes reality yep 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 that's right and and these spaces are dwindling and they're not maybe treated with the same kind of you know respect as they they used to be but again that's one of the ways that we think about it we're not purist you know we're not we don't believe that you need to do tinker garden in a national park and with a right. beautiful waterfall in the background and you can do Tinker Garden in your backyard. You can do Tinker Garden in a little patch of grass in front of a school or you know wherever you are, right? And, and we do, we have people who are doing it everywhere, right? These spaces, these common spaces that do exist, be it that they're dwindling, you know, it doesn't take much. Right, but in you know? theory, the more we engage, then the more of these spaces we're gonna want, we're gonna push back. I mean, I guess the adults are as changed by this as the kids. Absolutely, yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, I mean, it's it's transforming the way that they're parenting. It's they're, it's really having people reflect on the way that they behave and spend time with their kids and what they do and what they don't do. And, you know, we get a lot of that, that kind of feedback from parents all the time, which, you know, when you're trying to do something like this and you're trying to spread it to as far and as wide as you can, it's hard. And so, like, those those kind of stories actually matter to, you know, keep you going. When you look at the world now... I mean, it's hard. It's this conversation is actually, I don't know, for the people listening, but for me, it's almost like weird relief from what's going on in the world and politically and economically and yeah. fear of falling into falling into fascism. I don't know. There's a sense of of engagement and power and control in play that you don't get in work. You know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. And. Uh, and the, and the leaders, the people who are doing this, I think there is a little bit of you know, lashing back at what is out of my control, right? This is happening within my world. This is happening within my country. I don't necessarily you know, agree with it, but what can I do about it? Right after the election, we have a strong community, you know, hundreds of these, these leaders around the country, and all of them are online you know, within our forums, like chatting with each other and sharing ideas and you know, helping each other and so forth. And it was just amazing to see this kind of uprising like right after the election mm-hmm. where people just felt hopeless, you know, in, in, in a certain way. And they, they immediately turned to Tinker Garden and it was like, okay, actually this is a reason for me to get up in the morning. This is something that I can affect. This is something I can do. And like, I don't know what the heck's going to go on in my world, but like I can do one thing, which is I can bring a dozen families together in my town give them a nice social experience where the kids can get a learning experience from it. And I can do that. I can do that today. I can do that this week. And it was just, it was really incredible. And we didn't expect it at all. Um, But it was really incredible to see people kind of pull together and say, you know, this is something I can actually do and and affect. No, I like that. I mean, it seems to me to be the best um, cure and empowerment for those who do have a progressive vibe Mm. is just experience doing something. And that's the thing I've been arguing to the uh, mm. Democratic-type operatives I know. It's like, stop worrying so much about uh, elections and polling and public opinion and stuff, and just 
promote social justice, promote mutual aid, promote yep. education. Just let people do stuff. Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Go do something. And then they will feel then they will realize, oh, this is the progressive agenda. It's actually being engaged. Right. Otherwise, you can't if you're gonna play it through Twitter, if that's your way of enacting social justice, right. mutual aid then you've lost before you've begun. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, we were all, I, I heard your, you know, the, the podcast where you, you were out there, you know, at the, the march in New York, I was out there as well, and, and uh, you know, it's like, that's... I didn't see. <laughs> it's amazing, right? <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, it's uh, one of those, those things that people say, okay, I, I actually did something today, mm -hmm. right? And I feel held empowered, and, and yeah, we, we need a little bit more of that. Cool, well, yeah. thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. Thanks to Sylvia Zur of Inspiral, Stephen Covey with Shannon, Michael Fredrickson, Sean Feeney, Sarah Wilson, and Dode for your, your consistent ongoing support of this show via the virtual coin slot at teamhuman.fm. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.